This is why small business matters from Northumbria University. Supporting small businesses with the Help to Grow Management Programme. I'm Sarah Stevenson and I'm part of the Help to Grow Management team at Northumbria University, helping businesses to boost leadership skills and performance. Today's guest is Catherine Rogers from Face to Face HR. Where I see things fall down when people are trying to address issues is when they go into that initial conversation having already decided what they want the outcome to be. She is a chartered CIPD member for 21 years and in that time she's seen more than her fair share of tick boxes and regulation frameworks that completely ignore the human component. She's had enough of HR that is much more about numbers than about people. And she believes that what really makes the difference between the businesses that engage with and retain their teams and the ones that don't is communication. And Catherine's been running her HR consultancy since 2018 and brought it back to Newcastle in 2022. So she's a proud Geordie and is delighted to be working with small and mighty businesses in her hometown. and welcome to Why Small Business Matters. Thank you so much for having me on, Sarah. So tell me a little bit about your HR background. How did you come to set up your own business and what did you do before that? I've been in HR for, for 21 years, as you just said. Um, within that time, I've worked for the public sector. I've worked for not-for-profits. I've worked for large, multinational, heavily matrixed organisations. And I've worked for private equity-backed startups. Um, and in that time, um, regardless of the type of company or where they were in the world, I kind of saw that the same issues came up, the same people problems came up. Um, and often, you know, the business owners, the business leaders tripped over with the same sorts of things. Um, when uh, so, so I started my business in, in 2018, and that was predominantly driven by becoming a parent. Um, so I had my little boy in 2017. Um, and that was a real moment for me to think about, well, what do I want from work now? Um, and I knew I didn't want to be screeching into a nursery car park at five to six every night. I didn't want to be apologizing um, when I was going to his school events, that kind of thing. So being, um, being, my, being my own boss was the best way to have that control over my time. Um, plus, I love working with small businesses. Um, you know, the, the, I lived in the Middle East for seven years. The last role I had there uh, for the last four years I was there with was with that private equity backed startup. Um, in the time I was with them, we went from 30 to 147 people. We opened in three new countries and I was the only HR person for most of that time. Um, so I just I love the variety, the pace. Um, and even today, my clients can still call me up with situations and questions that surprise me and that I haven't necessarily come across that exact permutation of the situation before. Um, so, yeah, ultimately, I'm, I'm nosy and I like knowing all the secrets and, and HR is a, is a great place to be for that. So for those listeners who don't really know what HR is all about, I think in the old days we called it personnel, um, is where you went to knock on the door when you were about to hand in your notice or, you know, you wanted to pay rise and nobody was listening. Um, so tell me a little bit about the service, general services that you might offer a small business that comes to you. Fundamentally, HR is a service to the business. We work for the business, um, but it's all about helping that business make the right decisions for their people and get the, you know, get, get the best possible decision for the business and for the people who work for them. Um, I can do that in a number of ways. So, you know, for, for micro businesses, that might be on a completely flexible pay-as-you-go basis where they just call me up as and when as and when they need me. They're not tied into any kind of contract or, or fixed monthly payment. Um, if they have a specific project that needs to be handled, say if they are 
reviewing their handbook and introducing some new documentation, or if they have an individual redundancy process that they need some expert guidance with, um, or if they've got something like a one-off disciplinary or grievance issue that they just haven't got capacity to deal with internally, I can come and help with that. Um, and then I do offer, a, I guess, the, what, what people expect from an HR consultant in terms of a more traditional retained service as well, where, where I would become the business's outsourced HR department. They can call me for whatever they need, whatever queries that come up. Um, and I'll, as I say, help them get to that uh, that right decision. We like to add value on this podcast. So um, I'd like to ask you about some things and, and maybe you can give some advice to, to our listeners about, let's start off with getting ready to hire. So what are the things that a business really needs to understand before they start putting posts on LinkedIn or putting the message out to recruiters? Something I would I would always advise them to do is, is think carefully about what they actually need. Um, I think often it's a bit of a knee-jerk, like, oh my God, I'm so busy. Um, I'm desperate. I need some extra capacity. And they don't really think about, well, what tasks do I want somebody to cover? What What is the actual need here? What are the things I'm spending more time on that would be better handled by somebody else? Um, and it's, yeah, it's a knee jerk. And that's sometimes when you end up with a friend or a family member in without any real consideration of, you know, is this the right person to delegate that work to and to, you know, to, to bring that value into the business? Um, they don't have to go for employment straight away. Um, so from a legal point of view, there's three different ways you can engage with people. They can be self-employed, they can be a worker or they can be an employee. Um, each of those different levels of engagement has different levels of responsibility and commitment that the business will need to make. Um, so, you know, if we say self-employment, that's that's quite straightforward. I would always recommend having a contract for services in place because it just helps manage expectations as well as providing some protection and clarity for both sides. Um, and beyond that, you really just you really need to make sure you've got your relevant insurances in place. Um, obviously, if you go through to employment, you then need to think much more about, well, what equipment does that person need? Um, make sure that you've got the right um, employer's liability, health insurance coverage, sorry, um, health and safety coverage, that sort of thing. Um, you need to think about your payroll and your pension arrangements. You need to think about where and how and do you want them to work? You know, Are they going to be office-based? Are they going to be hybrid? What considerations might you want to take into account around that? Um, and then at that point, think about, okay, well, what documents do I want to govern that? Um, now, I wouldn't start from the contract and try and work forward. I would have a clear idea of, of what you want before you get to that point and before you have, and, and I can help my clients come to that. You know, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday afternoon about, okay, well, actually, I think probably associates or self-employed people are, are the way to go right now. That doesn't mean you can't progress them towards employment in the future, but you know, based on what you're telling me about the kind of support that you need, that sits comfortably within the legal definition of self-employment. Um, and it's a it's a simpler, less scary way to start if you're hiring for the first or if you're taking on additional resource in the business for the first time. Tell me a little bit about the hiring process. Um, it's obviously different for different organisations, I would imagine. But if take me through from you, you lead a business and, and you make that decision that you really need somebody else in your team. Um, again, I would say have a good think about your employer brand. Um, I think if we look at lots of clients, if I, if I think about a lot of my clients, they're very good at marketing what they do to their ideal customer. And they don't necessarily think in the same way when it comes to hiring about, well, how do we want to market ourselves to our ideal clients? Um, I mean, to give you an example, I did some work with um, a photography studio that specializes in burlesque and boudoir. 
So you go on their website and there's lots of amazing images and fantastic testimonials from their clients about how empowered they felt and how confident they felt and how well looked after they were. But then from the employer perspective, it was quite gray and quite traditional in a personnel sense. It was very, you know, very felt quite instructional that that same empowerment um, just wasn't there. Uh, so we had a really good look at, well, how do we want to change that? How do we want to make sure that that experience for somebody who sees your advert, then has a look on their website and then comes to talk to you in an interview is consistent? Um, so they don't come in and think, oh, this is really jarring. This is this is not what I expected at all. This is not how you present yourself externally. Because um, they are sort of two, you know, you've got your, your customers and your candidates are, are two different two different markets. I think once you've kind of thought about that employer brand piece, you know, think about, well, what is, again, what is it, what are, what's the role that we're recruiting for? Because um, the person comes later, the role, the role comes first, and you'll be really clear about, you know, what is that role? What are our expectations? How is it going to work? Um, and then how can we get that out there in front of those ideal candidates in a way that is going to get their attention? Um, I'm sure if we went on to LinkedIn jobs now and, and sort of searched for, say, like marketing manager or something like that, there would be an awful lot of the job adverts that would read almost identical. Um, and you know, you'd have, you know, we've got a fantastic opportunity to join a proactive and driven team. And you, know, you really want to use that opportunity to engage with people from the first from the first moment that they see you. Um, and standing out during your advertising is a great way to do that. I'd always say make sure you've got your values front and center in your advertising as well, because that is what people will engage with far more than the, the stuff, the tasks that they're doing on a day-to-day basis. In terms of steps, once, you, once you've got those candidates, once you've got people who've applied, it will very much depend on the role. Um, and I guess particularly for small businesses, my top tip would be you know, don't try and over-engineer it. You don't need a four-stage selection process. Um, you know, a, a single interview process with some relevant situational tasks around it might be enough for you to decide who you want. Um, and I would say as well, try and avoid um, doing, again, I've done this myself and I've seen it in lots of, my, lots of the clients that I work with, try and avoid basically just hiring yourself um, and looking for somebody who is like you. Um, you really do spend that time beforehand defining you know, what is the role here, what are the, the skills and attributes and experience that we want in this role, um, and then lining up your interview questions, any additional selection methods that you might use, your advertising around that. We hear a lot, don't we, now about values recruitment. So thinking about the skills that can be taught once you've actually joined, but it's does the candidate share the same values as the business? Do you come across that? Uh, yes, absolutely, I do. Um, and again, I think I, I see lots of clients who've got their values defined. You know, they've done the work around their their, their brand and their values, um, but then it doesn't quite make it into their advertising for whatever reason. Um, I think if you are going to do values-based recruitment, make sure you have spent some time really thinking about what your values are and making sure that they're relevant. And again, thinking about clients that I've worked with, I think when you've got eight to 10 values that have perhaps been picked because you want to have nice names on your meeting room doors rather than the the things that are really fundamental um, and embedded in your organization, um, then you do make sure that they are genuinely your values and they are things that are lived within the organization before you reflect them in your recruitment. You don't necessarily have to use all of them in your recruitment. You might pick a couple that you think are particularly linked to that role, um, but they are the things that people with, will connect with. 
Um, you know, for me, in my business community is one of my values because, you know, as we said in the intro, I'm, you know, I love my hometown. I'm really proud of where I'm, where I'm from. I want to be making a contribution to other small businesses and, and doing that kind of the, you know, the, the reciprocity piece um, in my particular part of the country. Um, and that's something I would want to see coming through in any recruitment that I did for my business. Um, but you, know, you need to articulate, well, why are we talking about that? Why, why is it important to us? And why do we want candidates to be able to share that and, and talk about why it's important to them as well? You also mentioned about the employer brand and thinking about the type of employer you want to be so that you can actually reach those candidates. The vast majority of small businesses that I work with, when they're hiring for the first time or when they've got a small team, from a pay and benefits point of view and from a terms and conditions point of view, they're going to work to the statutory minimums. Um, you know, they don't have a huge budget to spend on additional benefits. But what they can think quite carefully about is, well, you know, the difference between what's legal and what's ethical. And this is something I talk to my clients about quite regularly. I've got got some examples that I kind of jotted down to to illustrate that a little bit more. For example, I had, I had a client who um, one of their employees was leaving and they had it built into their documentation that they could recover training costs. The person had had quite a bit of training in the six months before they decided to resign. Um, and my client's initial intention was, well, I'm just going to, I can do it. It's in the contract. The provision is there. I can just take all that money back off them. And I went through and I added it up and I sort of said, well, you know, but they've got, you know, six weeks or so before they actually go. If you take all of that back from them now, like, yes, you can. But if you take all of that back from them now, they are going to essentially have two months before they have another paycheck going into their bank account. They're going to have financial commitments. They're going to have a mortgage to pay or rent to pay. They're going to have bills to pay. They might have a family to support. Do you really want to leave them in that situation? Is that the right thing to do as an employer? Um, and you know, I'm not saying just wave goodbye to the money. You know, it was a big financial commitment for the, for the business to have made as well. But have that conversation early with the individual to say, look, you know, we've been through the training that you've had. This is the value. You know, this is how much we've spent on it as a business. This is the provision within your contract. Um, however, we don't want to leave you in a position where you're struggling. Um, so you know, let's have a conversation about that. Like, can you, you know, is that going to put you in a position of hardship? Um, or is that manageable for you? Um, if it's not manageable, what can we do instead? What can we agree so that you can make the transition in a positive way from this role to your next role, um, and that we're all, you know, we're all happy and, and it's done in a professional and respectful way? Another example: I had a, a client who, um, again, an employee resigned. Uh, and it was somebody who hadn't been with them for very long, um, and they said, "Oh, um, well, if I sack them, if I terminate their contract instead, I only have to give them a week's notice, whereas they have to give me a month's notice." Can I can I terminate their employment because they've resigned? I said, well, they've only because they were they hadn't been there for very long. It was, well, you know, legally you don't have to give a reason at this point. You can just say, you know, I'm sorry, it's not working out. Here's your notice, off you go. Do again, do you want to be that kind of business? Um, would it not be better to have a conversation about? Look, you've handed your notice in. You're probably really keen to get to your new job as soon as possible. Yes, contractually you have to give a month, but I am happy to let you go sooner than that. What can we agree to? You know, what when can you start with your new employer? And and come to something that works for both of you, that's done mutually, rather than what feels like almost a bit of a spiteful reaction to somebody decided to move on. Um so I think that that interplay between ethical and legal is uh, is always an interesting conversation. 
I think that's it. It's bit finding pragmatic solutions, isn't it, that are mutually beneficial, but also you don't want someone leaving and bad-mouthing you to other people or you want to maintain that relationship. Maybe you want to work with them again at some point. Um, so it all that all makes a lot of sense. Just in terms of being a good employer and retaining staff, what advice would you give to people perhaps who are finding that a bit dif- difficult at the moment, you know, people leaving? How do, how do you help people to stick around and make that decision to stay with you as a business? I mean, I think it does come back to communication from the start and making sure that's that's built into you know, all of your people processes. Um, it's very easy to get focused on the task and the day-to-day stuff, but we should be talking to our team members just as regularly about, you know, how are you taking the well-being considerations into account? You know, what's going well in your role at the minute? What are you struggling with? What can we help you with? Um, you know, where, what are your aspirations for the future? That might sound like it needs to be a really long, intense conversation. But if you do it regularly, you can do them as 15, 20 minute catch ups and they're more meaningful. If you do happen to have a budget to be able to invest in some additional benefits, please talk to your team about what's going to be valuable to them first. Many years ago, I had a client who um, was a keen cyclist and it was like, right, I'm going to roll out cycle to work for the team. I'm going to do it for everybody. Nobody else cycled. So he was really excited about it, thought it was going to be great, thought the take-up was going to be great. And the team were just frustrated that he hadn't bothered to ask them whether it was going to be meaningful to them first. It fell flat on its face. And then he was really discouraged and downhearted by that, thinking, well, you know, I thought this was going to be really positively received. I've done it with the best intentions. Um, And what should be something positive for the business as a whole then almost goes the other way um, and becomes divisive for them. Yeah, so it's about involving those people in that decision-making, isn't it, it? right from the start? And I think probably using the probation period is a really important time, isn't it, to get to know each other and find out whether it's going to work, but also to support that new employee uh, hit the ground running and get moving, because I think sometimes that can be a difficult period, can't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, And I mean, the interesting thing with probation periods is that legally they don't really mean anything. You you still have to have your two years of continuous service before, as an employee, your additional statutory rights kick in. The only thing that will practically change after probation is usually the length of notice that both parties will have to give. But as you say, Sarah, you know, it's such an important time for the business and the individual. Um, You know, it's it's when they're both testing out, okay, well, how we thought you were going to be during the recruitment process, like, is that what it's really like? Am I getting what I've been sold? You know, is it what it says on the tin? Um, So being clear about how you want that process to work and how you're going to check in with people during it and what's going to happen at the end is really important. Um, I mean, with a previous business that I worked with, um, our induction procedure was very heavily influenced by the line manager. Um, Some of them were absolutely brilliant and really, you know, had a really clearly defined process of what they wanted to do with people in their department. Others would arrive at my office door with their, their new person on their first day and be like, here you go, induct them. Um, <laughs> and it over. Um, so to get around that, we well, to, to avoid that variation of experience for people, we redesigned um, the, the first month of the probation process to be, we called it a new starter treasure hunt. 
Um, and that fitted with our particular type, with our particular kind of business. I understand that might not work for every business, but it, the language was right for who we were. Um, and they had some really clear steps to follow during their first four weeks. Some of their first week's tasks were very basic. Some of it was just, you know, check that your details are correct on the system. Make sure you've handed in your P45 or your P46 to finance so we can make sure you're paid correctly. Um, go out for lunch with your team. Go and introduce yourself to another department. Um, and then it went right through to the last week was sit down with your manager and agree what your objectives are going to be for the next six months. You'll get those set within our system so that you know what you're doing and how you're being measured. Um, and it made it much more about, well, we want, again, proactivity and um, taking control of their own career direction was something that was really important in that business. So again, that lined up with that and it meant the individual was really clear about what we wanted to see from them from a practical point of view. But we could also see, well, are you going to grab that with both hands? Are you going to you know, take control of that process? Or are you going to sit back and wait for somebody to, to take you through it? Because if you are, then we need to have a conversation about what we expect and what our values are and, and how we might want to support you to, to work within that. But I think once again, you've just emphasised the fact that if you're clear in your communication and you expect that from the employee too, then things will work but it's 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 when you're not communicating that things are going to go wrong aren't they i was talking to um, a, a coach friend of mine um and she used a great quote from brene brown which is um clear is kind unclear is unkind um and i think you can almost take that a step further in an employment environment to say well clear is clear is safe unclear is unsafe um because if you're not clear and things do go badly wrong and you end up with a claim, um, you know, if you end up with the individual going off to, to tribunal and you haven't been clear, then you are putting your business at risk. You're listening to Why Small Business Matters. Find out how Northumbria University can help your business thrive through the Help to Grow Management Programme. Delivered by leading small business and enterprise experts from Northumbria University with the support of leading figures from industry and experienced entrepreneurs. The programme supports senior managers of small and medium-sized businesses to boost their business's performance, resilience and long-term growth. The 12-week programme is 90% funded by the government and the fee payable by participants is £750 and has been designed to allow participants to complete it alongside full-time work. The in-depth, high-quality curriculum supports you to build your capabilities in leadership, innovation, digital adoption, employee engagement, marketing, responsible business and financial management. By the end of the programme, you'll develop a business growth plan to help you lead your business to realise its potential. To find out more about the programme, the modules, eligibility and fees and delivery dates, go to northumbria.ac.uk slash help to grow listening to Why Small Business Matters and today we're talking to Catherine Rogers from Face to Face HR. Let's um let's just turn now to to some of those issues that that may well crop up when you're looking at people within your organization. Um we hear quite a lot about harassment and and workplace um bullying. Um I know there are lots of different definitions of of what it really means. But if that's something that's happening in your organization whether it's happening to you or your um, managing a team or you own the business, what do you need to think about and how can you support people in those positions? I mean, I think if we, if we think about the legal bit for a sec, and I won't dwell on this too much. So again, I've had clients say, well, you know, but bullying is not unlawful. Um, so, well, no, it's not unlawful, but it's very definitely unethical and not something that you want to be seen to condone. 
um, within within your business, within your team. Um, I think, you know, it goes back, it's the sort of principle that we don't, we would apply anywhere else in our lives, hopefully, that if we see somebody behaving in an unacceptable or negative way that is harming somebody else, then we'll stand up and you know, we'll address that. We're not just going to let it happen um, and say, oh, but it's banter or, oh, but they can sort it out themselves. Um, you know, again, that early intervention to say, you know, okay, this isn't, this is not in line with our values. This is not okay. Um, you know, let's understand what's actually going on here. Um, and this is where sometimes things like mediation can be really helpful because often the issue that's on the surface isn't the real issue. Um, you know, there might be more going on for the individuals behind the scenes. There might be a, a, a bigger issue under the surface of the relationship that needs to be addressed and getting to that as a business owner, whilst also keeping the business running and maintaining a positive relationship with those individu individuals yourself can be really tricky. So sometimes that's where external support can be really valuable to sit down and talk to those people and say, okay, you know, tell me what's going on, what's really behind this? Um, where do you want it to go? What outcome are you looking for? Um, and you know, can, we, can we facilitate that? Um, and if you can do that informally uh, at an early stage, rather than letting it get to the point of somebody having to put in a grievance, your chances of getting to an outcome that is actually acceptable for both parties is, is so much greater. I mean, I've never seen anybody get what they want out of a grievance. Um, it tends to just be a very stressful and time-consuming process for everybody involved and not necessarily have, have very much um, impact at the end. So yeah, early intervention, um, you know, when you see something that doesn't look quite right or that doesn't sit with your values or, or doesn't um, line up with, with who you want to be as a, as a business or an employer, whether, whether you are the business owner or whether you're a colleague seeing something happening to somebody who sits a few desks down, you know, encouraging within the organisation that people can speak up about that. Um, not necessarily to take it on and address them, them themselves, but you know, to have that ability to address it and to understand, well, who, do I, who can I talk to about that? Who is going to help me make sure that that's dealt with in the right way? And I guess it's like it, it's talking to your employees and the people in your organisation about lots of different things, isn't it? And, and making sure that they understand that that's not acceptable, that sort of behaviour. We talk a lot about well-being and, and mental health in organisations, but we seem to hear stories now, particularly post-COVID, um, of people who have long-term absences, they may be on sick leave because they can't quite get the support they need. Does that come up with some of the people you talk to? Yes, absolutely, yeah. Um, I, mean, I think one of the trickiest, uh, I think mental health and neurodiversity have obviously risen in profile significantly in the last few years. One of the biggest conversations, well, one of the biggest challenges, I guess, I come up with there is, is where an employer will say, oh, well, but they haven't got a diagnosis. They're just telling me that they have this. You know, how do I know it's real? Um, how do I know that it, they're not they're not making it up? Um, and I mean, my response to that would always be, look, if somebody has come to you and they are saying, I have something that is affecting me in my day to day life, then don't rely on them producing a piece of paper from a healthcare professional before you take them seriously. You know, it's going to have been hard for them to be open about that and to come forward because again, most of us don't usually want to disclose that to empl our employers. Um, so you know, if somebody has taken that step to come and, and highlight that they're struggling with something, then have that, again, have that open conversation, you know, open conversations are everything in HR, <laughs> um, about, okay, well, tell me more about it. You know, how is it affecting you? What support are you getting? 
if any, you know, whether that's through a professional route or through you know, your personal support network, you know, do you have family support available? Um, depending on what it is, you know, are they taking any medication? Does the medication have any side effects that you need to be aware of at work? What problem, you know, what, what future check-ins do they have booked if they have, if they are going, I guess, a more sort of traditional healthcare route, you know, when is it, when, when are they next due to have a review? Um, so that, you can diarize that and you can have a conversation with them after that to say, well, how did it go? Has anything changed? Have they told you to do anything different? You know, have they signposted you towards any additional support that you might go, need to go and access so that we can see if we can facilitate that during working time? Um, there are resources that employers can provide for their teams that aren't very expensive. You know, typically uh, an employee assistance program doesn't cost a lot of money um, and it gives it gives your team somebody somewhere that they can call 24 7 completely confidential confidentially um, and access support with things like you know finances or legal concerns or health related concerns um if you are going to introduce an eap i would that's the employee assistance program i would say market it properly because otherwise the take-up will be low because often people are thinking, well, it's not really confidential. You're going to know, you, you know, you're going to get a list from the provider of who's called and why. And that doesn't happen. You know, it is genuinely confidential. But I think if people don't understand it, then getting that return on the investment is is going to be limited. From a longer, longer term sickness perspective, when people go off, I think that the, the biggest issue I see is when it's like, oh, well, but they're off work and they're not very well, so we don't want to bother them. And they're almost just left to drift in the background and I know how I would feel as an individual if I had a you know a significant health condition that meant I couldn't come to work and nobody called me to ask how I was if that individual has said look I really can't talk um you know, I'm, I'm not in a position you know, if, if they're hospitalized for example they might not be able to to have those conversations but there will be somebody within their support network that can um and as a business owner or an employer you should be proactively taking those steps if somebody is off on a longer term for a longer term reason to find out well how can we stay in touch with you what's going to be an appropriate means in your circumstances what might those time scales look like um because that will vary from person to person and for some people it might be well look i'm really not going to be in a position to give you anything by way of an update and i just need to focus on getting better for a couple of months um whereas others might want weekly fortnightly just a quick call to say you know how are you doing what's been happening this week. Here's an update about what's going on in the business. Um, yeah, and not forgotten, keeping those links open. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about appraisals and how we all hate them, but I just wondered what advice you would give to small businesses about ongoing development. Let's think of alternatives, because obviously as a business, you want to develop your people. It's not just about how what they deliver, but you want to develop them uh, to retain them. So what would you suggest instead, instead of a yearly sit down um what else could employers do um i mean i would always recommend going for more of a continuous performance management approach um and having those check-ins on probably a monthly basis um again you know if you've, that's going to vary slightly there's no sort of set standard that says under the law you must meet with people this often to talk about their performance and their aspirations um but I would say you to take it on a more continuous basis, have those conversations with people when they first join about, okay, you know, you've come to join us in this role. How does this fit into, fit into your longer term career plan? How do you want, you know, what are you really hoping to achieve through this? What are your development, what are your development goals? And that 
you know, then, then you can go away and think about, well, how does that fit in with, with what our business plans are and what our business goals are? Um, for small businesses, there's usually a lot of support out there for things like apprentice, um, apprenticeships and funded training. So I kind of think sometimes the reluctance is, oh, but this is going to be really expensive. Um, there may very well be more support out there than you think. Um, and you might be able to you know, provide some development for your team, which is really meaningful and valuable to them and drives that engagement. Um, you know, if you invest in somebody and you help them develop in their career, they're going to want to stay. Um, you know, not necessarily forever, um, but that you know, we all like to be learning, um, you know, without wanting to sound like Pollyanna, like, you know, I'm using a bit of retro reference there. Um, I do genuinely believe that most people get out of bed in the morning and we want to do a good job. We want to achieve things. We want to be able to get to the end of the day, the week, the month and think, do you know what? I did that. I've learned something there. I didn't, I, I was able to do that better um, because, so-and-so supported me by, by doing X, Y, Z. And, and that was what makes us feel good about work. Um, and sometimes that might be a more structured qualification. Sometimes it might be job shadowing with a more experienced member of the team. Um, it might be going out and doing some work with a, with a client and understanding you know, the, the world outside the business in more detail. There's no sort of exact list of, well, this is what development has to look like. And you know, the more you have those conversations and, and encourage people to be creative and open-minded about, well, you know, how do you think you said you struggle, you said you, you want to build your skills in this particular area, or you said you're finding this a bit trickier than other aspects of your job. How can we fill that? How can we address that? Um, and get as many ideas out there as possible. I think come back and review that regularly as well. So once said, okay, we're going to try this, uh, particularly if it's a more short, a shorter term intervention, come back to it and say, okay, you know, so did that work? Did that achieve what we wanted it to? Do we need to look at something else? Um, and it, again, when you're having those more regular conversations, you can do that. Whereas if it's something quite short term and you don't talk about it for another five months, the opportunity is kind of gone to, to come up with an alternative. I, I want to move on now to the dreaded theme of hybrid working. What are the businesses that you talk to? What is their approach? Are they still taking a very hybrid, flexible approach when they're recruiting people? Or is it a case of, no, back in the office, we've had enough of that, COVID's finished, business as usual? It varies. I mean, I do have some some uh, clients where the roles can't be hybrid. You know, you can't pick and pack in a factory from your house. Um, so there will always be some roles that do need to be on site. I think one of the biggest challenges with hybrid working, particularly for scaling businesses, is collaboration. Um, I mean, I, I know earlier in my career how much I got from just being in an office or being around people who were more experienced than me and hearing the conversations that they had and then being able to say, oh, you know, can I just join in there? I, I don't know about that. Or can you tell me more about that? And if you are working entirely on teams, that's not going to happen. Those natural conversations just aren't going to happen. Um, so thinking about, well, if we want to make sure that they are facilitated, how are we going to do that in a way that is right for our organization and right for our team? I can work from anywhere as long as I've got Wi-Fi and a laptop. And I think lots of people in sort of more professional services-based roles can. So I think there is sometimes a bit of a sell on, well, why, but why is that collaboration important? What are the benefits of that? Why is it going to be valuable to you as an employee rather than just, well, we have a lovely office space that we pay a lot of rent for, so we want people physically here. It's human nature. And if we understand why we're doing something, we're much more likely to do it. Whereas if it's just an instruction, more likely to resist, I think. 
I don't I don't think it will go back to how it was before, but I think the debate is ongoing at the moment. And I agree with you. I think the collaboration piece is perhaps what's missing at the moment for, for those people who are remote working. Artificial intelligence is talked about a lot. There seem to be conferences on every week. Uh, it's in the news. And for a lot of employees, the fear is that AI is going to take their jobs and what will happen next. And I just wondered, just in terms of talking to um, to your clients about this and how they're approaching their people management and trying to juggle the idea of using AI at the same time? Um, I mean, I think when it comes to people management, you, you can't do that without the human element. Um, you know, I think AI is a great tool. It's very powerful. It means that we can pull a lot of information together so much faster than if we were just trying to do it ourselves. Um, but it isn't the finished article. You know, what you get out isn't, you know, it, it hasn't necessarily been checked. You're not 100% sure that it's going to line up with your values, with your tone of voice. It's not going to sound, it might not sound like you as an employer. So I don't think there's anything wrong with using it in terms of, well, you know, let's understand what research and information is out there. Um, what might we, we want to, to take into account? Um, but in my view, it should be, you know, that's what it should be used as a research tool not as okay well now this is just a sort of plug and play um and it's this is the this is the answer um you know it's not always up to date so um i, I know that it's getting better and it depends which tool you choose as to, to how up to date it is um ultimately i think you know people work with people you know, we, we like to have somebody that we can talk to we like to have you know not just the words that are in front of us but all of the nonverbal communication as well um you know, the, the body language and the tone and, and all of that um and you know you're not again you're not going to get that from ai so you know i guess if you think about customer service businesses you know sometimes you you kind of your your online help is great um but if it's a difficult issue to solve then i would always rather talk to a person here here hate chatbots <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah. And that's, you know, that's sometimes for quite simple stuff. And, you know, people problems are usually a bit more complex. So you know, imagine having a, a chatbot that was there to try and sort of answer your HR queries at work without it being, you know, without any sort of humanity to it. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't think, I don't think you can replace a good old, a good old chat. Um, and I think they're absolutely key to know how we develop people um and and how we understand what people actually want from work well i I think we're stuck with it aren't we it's not going away um but we need to roll with it i think uh just looking to the future and how we can support small businesses um, improve their productivity and grow their businesses um i just wondered what support is out there currently for businesses and um just leave our listeners with with a few tips really about not just about how to um, recruit and, and retain their staff, but really develop them because um, there is there is support out there, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think this is where, you know, talking to your local colleges and universities and apprenticeship providers about, you know, what have they got? Because, um, again, I think we hear the word apprenticeship, for example, and we think um, we don't necessarily understand how many different things that that can cover. Um, and the, the scope of, of development that might be available um, under under that kind of umbrella, um, you know, within the northeast we've got RTC North, who do loads of funded training for small businesses. Um, you know, whether that's business owners, um, 
themselves or going through to members of their team as well. Um, so they're a great resource to talk to about, well, you know, this is what I want within my team. Um, how can I, how, you know, how can I try and facilitate that? Is there any support available? Um, the, the grant funding situation is a bit strange. You know, I think we, we still don't have an entirely clear picture about what's going to replace the European funding. Um, but again, the likes of RTC North and Northeast Fund, you know, would be able to advise any small business about, well, you know, for the project that you are looking to fund, this is the best way to do that. I think sometimes using this, you know, the likes of your local chamber of commerce, the Federation of Small Businesses, um, you know, the, the organisations that are out there to support small businesses is, is a good place to start as well. Um, whether that is a networking event, whether it is training that they're providing, um, there are so many, you know, there's lots of resources out there specifically focused on small businesses. Um, and it's, you know, to use a good old Georgie expression, shy burns getting out, you know, if you don't ask, if you're not prepared to put your hand up and say, look, this is what I want, where, where can I find that? Who can point me in the right direction? Then nobody's going to turn up at your front door with a solution for you. And again, quick plug for the Help to Grow Management programme that we run at Northumbria as well. If you're a senior leader and you're interested in leadership and management skills, um, do get in touch. We'll be able to have a chat with you about that. Catherine, it's been a delight to talk to you today. Uh, thank you very much indeed. No, thank you very much for having me. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, why not find us at your podcast app of choice and explore some of our previous episodes? And if you'd like to find out more about the Help to Grow Management course delivered at Northumbria University, go to northumbria.ac.uk forward slash help to grow.